so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. They say, or, ready, uh, steady, go. Or, they say, or, that's spot on, mate. Or, or you're... That's spot on, Or matey. they say, you're... you're Tan is a bit spotty. Or, they do you know. not say. Who yeah, says that? Say. I've never heard an English person say yeah, that. Or your, your your accent is a bit bit spotty. <laughs> they say but they spot don't. On. I don't think they actually say spot on. They say spot on, mate. No, I don't think so. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week, back from last year, a new year, is Brent Leatherwood. Yeah, all that could have been summed up by just saying it's our first episode of the new year. <laughs> well, Happy New Year, I, I everybody. Know, I wanted to find a way to say, we're back. We're not a horror film, uh, Lindsay. Well, to some we may be. <laughs> <laughs> To some, we might be. Brent, did you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year? I did. I did. As I was telling you the other day, uh, we participated in person and virtually in four different Christmas Eve candlelight services, which I thought was just totally rad. Capped off the evening with uh, watching the 11 o'clock Christmas candlelight service from uh, First Baptist Charleston, Marshall Blaylock's church that he, he leads down in South Carolina. Beautiful ceremony in a beautiful church facility. So, yeah, that's that was one of my highlights. So, number one, who says rad still? Number two— I'm trying to bring it back. Yeah. Your virtual candlelight services, did you have a candle that you lit and held? While participating? No, I, I didn't, but it was uh, it was while my wife was wrapping presents. <laughs> so you you can't say we we. You, well, no, was she was you. there. She was in the room. Oh, she was there. Yeah, okay. she was she was kind of rolling her eyes at me. Like, aren't yeah. you getting tired of this? I'm sure. <laughs> so I imagine she rolls her eyes at you a lot, Brent. Well, we you and her have that in common. So whatever. <laughs> well, you know, thank you for asking me about my Christmas and New Year. I'm well, glad yeah, so to what tell was you your, about it. What was your, what was what was your what was your favorite Christmas present that well, you got? Well, oh, oh, I'll be oh, glad to tell you about that. Yeah. We saw The Lion King off Broadway here at the Tea Pack, and it was fabulous. It was so good. It almost brought me to tears at the very beginning at the opening because it's beautiful. Number one, but number two, just reminding me of the Lord and how he's gifted so many people to create beauty, but then also the gift it is to be in that space. Well, after COVID, but actually during COVID, you know, after the beginning of COVID when everything shut down, it was really great. Uh, but we did have all the sickness except for COVID over the break. So it was, it was a good Christmas, but it was not how I imagined it, but that's okay. So anyway, we're glad to be here. I want to say I'm glad it's 2022, but 2022 is already feeling like 
2020. That's so right. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, as from the social media meme that was going around, it's not 2022 TWO. It's it's 2020 TOO. Yes. That's right. And it, it is. Yeah, because yeah, we we've got COVID outbreak all over the place here. So but before we settle in and talk about COVID, Omicron, all of those things, let's talk about what's been happening at the ERLC this week. And I'm actually going to go back to some pieces from last week as well, since we're just now coming back on air. There were some from last week, some from this week that are so good that I just, I could not neglect highlighting. So first off is a piece by Candace Waters, and it's titled, How to Protect Your Children from Social Media's Harms, Delay, Prepare, and Disciple. So we all know with a new year comes uh, a reevaluation of things that we did in the last year, comes a desire for new habits and resolutions for a different kind of life. We realize the things that were weighing us down in the past year. We want a full life, especially as believers, when we want to be good stewards of what the Lord has given us. And there is no denying, based on many studies and exposés that have come out over the last year or two, that social media is a beast. It can be used for good, but there is a lot of harm. It has a lot of ill effects on us and especially on our children. And this is what Candace Waters is writing about. She's responding to a Wall Street Journal article titled, Facebook Knows Instagram is Toxic for Teen Girls, Its Research Shows. And so this should make us aware as parents that social media isn't something our children participate in passively. It's actively doing something to them and actively shaping them. So Candace and the advice that she gives, she sums it up in these three things that are in the subtitle, delay, prepare, and disciple. And so I thought that this was instruction and advice that we all needed to hear and that we all need to um, evaluate how to apply in our own lives. Well, Candace's piece is almost like, it, it feels like it was taken from conversations that we are having in uh, the Leatherwood home, uh, particularly this <laughs> her advice about delay, delay, delay. I, I'm adamant that our children they may not even get a smartphone until they go to college, oh, <laughs> let sure. alone be able to create social media accounts. Somebody should hold me to account for this because probably in, in 10 years, someone will be like, oh, I, I told you so. But we are truly going to try and keep this away from our kids uh, as much as possible in, in a responsible way, right? Because that's the other thing. You don't want to overreact so much that it it becomes this thing that they actually aspire to be a part of. So th there's that. So we're, we're definitely, as parents, going to try and, and find a way to balance this. Um, and, you know, it also reminded me, she she highlighted that, that story that I think we ended up talking about uh, from the Wall Street Journal. Facebook knows Instagram is toxic for teen girls. It's research shows, and, and this comes from the Facebook papers uh, that have come out, this individual who used to work at, at Facebook, who is uh, revealing a lot of, you know, internal discussions and paperwork that's happening there. And it just reminded me that her line here talks about uh, the photo sharing app. It's built around filtering and editing selfies to their best effect. And I was actually even just thinking about this last night. So much of what you see on Instagram is not real. And there becomes this temptation, and especially as as this shows, for, for teenage girls to, like, want to be like what they see. But even what they are seeing is not real. And I think we forget that. I mean, and so much about social media is just the posturing or 
performing. And it's just, it's not real life. And um, we should keep that in mind. And, and I just say all that to say, that is why we want to try and either keep social media away from our children or at least limit their exposure to it. I, I certainly want them to be aware of it, but I don't want them to see it as like this thing that they have to be a part of. So, eh, no, our, our lives are rich and full without it. Right. You want them to have a vision for a better life, like beholding other beautiful things to take the place of social media. And it reminds me of another piece that we had this week by Jordan Wooten called Why Christians Can Be Content with a Quiet Life in a Social Media World, Likes, Retweets, and the Countercultural Call of Believers, which is reminiscent of what you're saying, that social media is set up so that we would seek notoriety. Even if we're trying to use it for good means, it appeals to our flesh, and it's meant to do that. And so we do need to think carefully about how we use it. I'm trying to do that. It's already been hard. You know, the first week of January was great. And now it's like, oh, it's like trying to go to the gym and continue that resolution, which is not one of my resolutions, by the way. So a second article that I wanted to share with you, I'm excited about. This is by Elizabeth Bristow, one of our colleagues, and it's titled, Why Southern Baptists Care About the Uyghur Genocide, an interview with Griffin Gulledge on the SBC resolution, Religious Liberty and Praying for the Uyghurs. So Griffin, just last year, was awarded the ERLC's John Leland Religious Liberty Award for drafting a resolution for the Southern Baptist Convention that advocated on behalf of the Uyghur people. And you've heard us talk about the Uyghur people, a predominantly Muslim and Turkic-speaking ethnic group who are the targets of just a horrible genocide by the Chinese government. And this is going to be highlighted in coming days because of the Olympics, the Winter Olympics taking place in China. But it's kind of out of a movie how Griffin brought this to light in the Southern Baptist community especially. But he is a pastor in Georgia, and he had a tweet go viral on July 15th of 2020. He posted a video on Twitter showing these Uyghurs kneeling in rows after being escorted off of trains. And what we would come to find out is that they're heading off to camps, their heads are shaved, so Griffin answers questions about why he cares about human dignity, uh, you know, what pastors can do, how we can pray, why it's important that the Southern Baptist Convention is the first denomination to condemn the Chinese Communist Party for this genocide of the Uyghurs. I appreciated his interview. It was illuminating. It was inspiring. It just makes me thankful for believers like Griffin who are using, in a good way, their platform on social media to advocate for the vulnerable. Well, that's right. We did give Griffin that award, and uh, I was able, along with a few of our colleagues, to head down to uh, Madison, Georgia, where he pastors, and uh, present him that award in front of his uh, congregation. And one of our trustees uh, gave an incredible message that evening uh, about the plight of the Uyghurs and why Christians uh, here in America should care about that. And so uh, this is a great piece. And uh, as we are coming up on the Olympics, this is an important piece to help us remind folks about what the atrocities uh, that are occurring in China. And then finally, a piece by Jason Thacker. So one of our top pieces last year was one that explored ethical issues in technology to watch for in 2021. So Jason did this again and has four ethical issues in technology to watch for in 2022. 
And I'm just going to go ahead and list off what these are. Content moderation and free speech, misinformation, fake news, which we all have added that to our vocabulary now, unfortunately, especially throughout these last few years. Digital surveillance and data privacy, and then digital authoritarianism. So how people like, or governments like China are using technology in order to control people, to control their subjects, and to get them to bend to their will. And Jason says this, as Christians engage the most pressing issues of our day, we must do so with a rich vision of human dignity and a public theology that is rooted in the truthfulness of Scripture. And then he closes out his article saying this, looking out onto the ethical and policy landscape of 2022, there is much to be hopeful about, but there are also many pressing issues that need to be addressed by thoughtful and rich engagement from the church as she proclaims the goodness of God's design and the truth of the gospel to a world desperately in need of both truth and grace. And I love that. I love that we can engage these things, that there are people like Jason and other believers whom God has gifted in these areas to help us know how to engage, and that we are called to herald the truth of the gospel of grace to a world that is desperately in need of it without knowing it. That's right. And Jason is a model for that rich and and thoughtful engagement. Uh, and, you know, I was just reminded recently in a conversation with him about how these digital technology firms and, and social media companies, like, they are continually calling him and asking him for guidance on some of these ethical issues that they're being confronted by. And I'm so thankful uh, that he is a part of that. And I'm thankful that you've kind of started this nice little annual piece here uh, that that looks at, at these articles. So it'll be interesting after we get a few more of these under the belt, kind of look back and see where Jason has been pretty... Uh, spot on, spot as they say, on in, over in, the pond. Well, I think Americans actually do it, and, and, and we don't have to have the accent. I think we actually could just say spot on, too, and nobody, we don't have to... I don't think we really say spot on. But, oh, I say know. spot on. So, anyways, uh, but yeah, we can we can look back and and see just how good he was at these predictions and uh, what sorts of bad. issues have. Come Love out. you, Jason. Mean it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have a feeling he will. Uh, yes, he will be spot on. Well, and we should use this time to plug his podcast, uh, the Digital Public Square, and especially this coming week, he'll have our colleague Chelsea Sobolik on discussing the new public policy agenda that we've uh, just released here at the ERLC, which kind of takes an expansive look at some of our top priorities in various issue areas. And um, so, yeah, that'll be a good conversation. Folks can go hear from Jason himself. That's right. So if you need help with techie things and ethical quandaries, uh, Jason's podcast is a place for you to go. Because we missed a couple weeks, I would encourage you to go onto our site to take a look at what was happening on our site since Christmas. There are just a lot of great, timely articles. But for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. And moving into our culture section this week, Brent, what's been happening since we've uh, last talked? All right, Lindsay. Well, we will begin with the high-stakes negotiations that have been going on this week between the United States, Russia— and NATO. This comes to us from CBS News. A senior Russian diplomat wouldn't rule out the possibility of his country placing military infrastructure in Cuba or Venezuela as the Kremlin called two recent rounds of talks with U.S. and NATO 
as unsuccessful. Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rebkov, who led negotiations with U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman in Geneva this week, said Thursday that he didn't want to, quote, confirm anything, but won't exclude anything here either when asked whether Russia might consider establishing a military presence in America's backyard. It was a significant ratcheting up of the tension between the U.S. and Russia in a week that many hoped would put diplomacy front and center. The current standoff between Moscow and Washington has been casually framed as a contemporary echo of the Cold War for weeks, but Rayabkov's remarks were sure to resonate loudly in the ears of Americans either aware or old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Now, Brent, we've talked about U.S. and Russia and meeting and Ukraine on the podcast before. So can you explain to me and to listeners uh, who don't remember why they were meeting? That's right. So from that same story, uh, Russia's military has massed about 100,000 troops along its border with Ukraine, stoking fears that could be preparing for another invasion of the country as it did in 2014 when Vladimir Putin sent in his forces and annexed the Crimean Peninsula. U.S. officials have said an invasion could begin as soon as January or February and involve as many as 175,000 Russian troops. So these negotiations with the U.S. and NATO and uh, Russia on the other end of the table have been an attempt to calm some of those fears and hopefully head off what a number of intelligence officers uh, and analysts believe is essentially an imminent invasion uh, of Ukraine. And, you know, there's, there's a whole history behind this, but essentially Ukraine has been trending more and more westward and looking more and more to Western alliances for everything from its economy to also its uh, national security. And that doesn't make Russia very pleased. And, um, they were hoping that potentially this meeting could potentially avoid that. But as this report and others suggest, not everybody feels all that great coming out of this meeting. Uh, Russia had made several demands that both NATO and the U.S. had dismissed outright. And this comes in the kind of larger global context of a number of countries getting ready to send their athletes to China for the Winter Olympics. And so there is some thought that Putin may try to avoid uh, an invasion while the Olympics are happening, but nobody really knows. But this is a situation that we should be paying attention to, and, and it could just lead to disastrous consequences for the folks in Ukraine, and the world could be drawn into something here that we just don't know where it leads. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I know there's probably a lot of speculation, and it might seem like a really dumb question, but... If Russia invaded Ukraine. So that is something that the rest of the world, particularly those who care about peace, (laughs) uh, would want to get involved in and have serious talks about getting involved in. That's why it would affect the U.S. Right. Well, what President Biden and his administration have signaled that should Russia do that, there would be the most uh, severe type of economic sanctions at a minimum placed on Russia. As a matter of fact, there's a couple of pieces of legislation floating around Capitol Hill right now to that effect. And, and so this is this is a very real uh, but very fluid situation. Ultimately, nobody knows exactly what uh, Russia is going to do. 
And nobody wants to make a move that would potentially be a trigger for Russia also. So it's, I mean, like with all things in foreign diplomacy, it is a delicate balancing act. So certainly something that, that we should be keeping an eye on, that all of us, honestly, should be keeping an eye on. All right, moving closer to home, Anthony Fauci, a noted doctor and scientist from the U.S. government, says that the Omicron variant will find, quote, virtually everybody. This comes to us from the Washington Post. Top U.S. infectious disease expert Anthony S. Fauci on Wednesday reiterated the stark warning that the coronavirus will probably infect most Americans eventually, but added an important caveat. While, quote, virtually everybody is going to wind up getting exposed and likely infected, he said, if you're vaccinated and if you're boosted, the chances of you getting sick are very, very low. Fauci made the statement at a White House news briefing echoing what other top health officials have said in recent days. His comments add to the growing list of clarion calls to the unvaccinated, urging them to get shots by citing grim numbers that show the uninoculated are in danger of serious illness. At a Senate hearing Tuesday, Fauci said that unvaccinated people are 20 times likelier to die, 17 times likelier to be hospitalized, and 10 times likelier to be infected than the vaccinated. And in that same session, acting commissioner of the FDA, Janet Woodcock, said that, quote, it's hard to process what's actually happening right now, which is most people are going to get COVID. So that kind of echoes something that <laughs> that you said at the top of our recording here, Lindsay, that we're kind of seeing it everywhere around us, at least here in, in Nashville or us around the ERLC. Uh, we've just had a number of conversations recently. It's like, gosh, it's, it seems like everybody is getting this particular strain of COVID. Yes. And you, I can't remember if we said this on the show or if it was just us talking before that an article came out. For us here in Nashville, it said one in 33 Nashvillians are infected with Omicron. And so, well, I don't know if it was exactly Omicron or just COVID. Anyway, all that to say is if you don't live in a bubble, you're going to end up getting COVID. So I'm, yeah, hopefully this is how it burns out because it is more contagious and less severe. I pray that way. I still get nervous for my kids, although my pediatrician has allayed those fears and is, um, has said that children, by and large, do very well. It's kind of like we expose them to RSV, and there are still children who get very sick from RSV, and then we expose them to the flu or other things. So vaccinations are the way to go. I feel less stressed because of our vaccinations. I think it's important to say that, uh, you know, Fauci said the chances of you getting sick are very, very low if you're vaccinated and boosted. That doesn't mean you're not going to catch it and you're not going to exhibit symptoms. It means you're not going to get extremely sick and end up in the hospital, mm -hmm. which is what these vaccines do. Right. Which also makes me thankful for vaccines like MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, that we don't have to have measles. Right. <laughs> A mild case of the measles. So. Well, and I've noticed in more and more reporting recently, it, it seems like the language or the reporting and the an analysis is, is suggesting that Omicron is helping us get closer to COVID being endemic as opposed to an epidemic, which, I mean, I'm not not an infectious disease expert, right? But that, that would seem to be a better place for us globally uh, for it to be endemic. So it, it is just something that we have. It's always in the background, like flu, and, and hopefully we will develop, I guess, a, an annual vaccine for it, like we do for the flu, right. that will help stave off serious 
I just read an article about the, well, I was glancing over one about the 1918 Spanish flu and that there's a strain of that that still circulates to this day. So it probably most likely be something like that, but will not have near as fatal consequences. And let's just hope and pray that this is the only time in our lifetimes that we're going to be living through this because this was one for the birds. Mm. So much suffering and inconvenience, to put that lightly. All right, well, moving on, uh, President Biden gave a big speech this week in Atlanta, Georgia, about voting rights. And the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, he took issue uh, with President Biden's big voting rights speech. This story comes to us from ABC News. As President Joe Biden prepared to head to Capitol Hill on Thursday to rally Senate Democrats on election reform, a visibly angry Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, fired back on Wednesday, saying he didn't recognize the man who delivered the fiery speech in Georgia on voting rights one day earlier. McConnell characterized Biden's speech, in which the president called for the Senate to change its rules by whichever way they need to be changed in order to pass the Democrats' voting bills, as profoundly, profoundly unpresidential, deeming the remarks a rant that was, quote, incoherent, incorrect, and beneath his office. President Biden, one day earlier in Atlanta, spoke forcefully in favor of changing the Senate filibuster rule so that Democrats could pass two key voting bills that have stalled in the Senate. I was talking to a few folks uh, after this speech, and, and one in particular said that uh, he believes uh, ultimately the, the filibuster uh, is, is going to be gone, that either way, whether it happens right now or if uh, Republicans were to take back the chamber after the November elections, uh, he believes that the, the filibuster is on its last legs, which I don't think people have fully reckoned with what that will mean, how that will change the Senate. The short summary of it is essentially the, the Senate will become a, uh, a body where uh, a simple majority will pass all kinds of legislation, uh, nominations, et cetera. And so it will be much more like the U.S. House. And um, that's going to be different uh, for our political square. And uh, I, I don't know that we all have really sat down and, and really thought through what this means in, in whatever direction your political philosophy lies. Uh, if it just takes a simple majority to get things out of the Senate and and to the president's desk, that's going to have a lot of downstream effects uh, for people that I'm not sure everybody really wants. So does that mean that the filibuster is a way of delaying votes, right? Or passing, voting to pass legislation? Yeah. And mm -hmm. so when there's a filibuster, that means that people have to negotiate yeah, so, so that'll get passed? Essentially, the way it plays out right now is the filibuster is an internal rule in the Senate that says you have to get 60 votes in agreement to move to actually consider something on the floor of the House. And if you can't get those 60 votes, then you can't move to consider it. So it, it forces the party that wants to get whatever that item is to the floor for a vote. It forces them to say, okay, well, let's go to the minority party. Uh, bargain with them, negotiate with them, see what they'll agree to, and then that is what we will bring to the floor. There's been some talk, uh, Senator uh, Joe Manchin uh, from West Virginia recently has said he might be willing to offer a compromise, which is a uh, a talking filibuster, which is 
what most people think of the filibuster, go back to the Mr. Smith Goes to Washington uh, movie. I think of the bright tennis shoes that that one lady was wearing that one time. Do you remember? Yes. Recently? Yes. I don't remember what it was over. I don't remember her name. That was at the state level. That was in Texas. Okay. That's what I think of. (laughs) Right. But no, this is like most folks, if they recall, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Jimmy Stewart uh, was playing a senator uh, who went to Washington, and he did a talking filibuster. And essentially what that would mean is so long as you hold the the floor, the possession of the floor by talking, no one can can move a vote forward. And um, I'm not sure exactly how this is going to play out. Both Manchin and Kristen Sinema, uh, the senator from Arizona, they both have indicated uh, they are not likely to go along with any changes to the filibuster. So it's it's unlikely that anything would happen. But again, I, it's just interesting that this is where Democrats are going. Okay, well, Lindsay, for our next story, let me ask you this framing question. In your visits to the local grocery store or the Walmart or Dollar General or whatever, have you noticed that shelves are somewhat empty again? Yes. Yes, I have. I couldn't find cornstarch the other day. Cornstarch? What were we, I, I got to know. Where are you going to use the cornstarch? I was making a stir fry. A so stir fry. I didn't have, my, my sauce wasn't thick. It was just, you know, runny, I guess. And I went to Party City to get uh, some decorations for Grant, my son, who just turned to one. And their shelves were bare, bare. Mm-hmm. So, Well, NBC News did a helpful story on why store shelves are empty again. The recent spread of the Omicron variant among supply chain workers, sour weather, and even a recall of bagged salads and vegetables have caused Americans to once again find barren shelves at supermarkets or retail stores. While industry leaders hope this latest supply chain foul-up will be a short-term frustration, it comes amid the ongoing challenges they faced during the pandemic, shipping delays, congestion at ports, labor shortages, and more. The number of people who voluntarily quit their jobs surged to 4.5 million in November. The U.S. Department of Labor's monthly job openings and labor turnover survey said last week, indicating that Americans are increasingly confident they can find better opportunities in the labor market. So as these jobs remain unfilled and this newest variant is able to find a foothold among largely unvaccinated meatpacking workforce members, the labor shortages are even further exacerbated. So when I read through this entire story, it's kind of like, oh, this is a pretty complex issue that is resulting in some of those shortages that we are seeing in stores. And I'm just, I hate that you're not able to find your your cornstarch for your stir fry. I know. So I don't I don't understand how this is going to be a short-term frustration if it has to do with all kinds of things, COVID, shipping, labor shortages, which seems to be the biggest problem that I've encountered. I went, like this one restaurant I like to go to, it's like a Chipotle where you go through, but it's clear that they don't have enough people. And so the line is always backed up. You don't get your pita like you're always supposed to. You might know where I'm talking about now that I said PETA. And uh, and you can just tell that the the pe- poor people behind the counter are just working their tails off. And they mm-hmm. just don't have enough help. Yep. Okay, and finally, in sports, uh, while we are speaking of COVID, the saga around the world's number one tennis star continues to play out in Australia. 
according to NBC News. Australia's prime minister said Thursday his government's tough policy towards visitors who were not vaccinated for COVID-19 had not changed as it nears a decision on whether to deport Serbian tennis star Novak Djokovic. The men's number one, tennis number one, had his visa canceled on arrival in Melbourne. Uh, He is heading there for the Australian Open. And he had it canceled last week when his vaccination exemption was questioned. But he won a legal battle on procedural grounds that allowed him to stay in the country. He still faces the prospect of deportation, a decision that is entirely at the discretion of Australia's immigration minister, if deemed to be in the public interest for health and safety reasons. So they released the seedings for the Australian Open. And of course, he's the world's uh, number one. So he is the number one for the tournament. But it is still unclear whether he's actually going to be able to participate in the Australian Open. And then I saw in the news that he had given an interview, although he was socially distanced while he had tested positive for COVID. So (laughs) there was some bad blood there, of course. He was apologizing and said he made a bad decision. Yes. And when when asked why he did it, he said, well, I I didn't want to disappoint the media. Right. Instead, (laughs) I wanted to share COVID with them. (laughs) I, I guess so. So, all right. Well, Lindsay. That is your look at this week in culture. And it's it's just it's good to be back with you in the in the new year. It's great to be back with you too, Brent. And you know who else we have that our listeners don't hear from is our audio producer, Mark Owens. That's right. Mark, He's now we here in Nashville with us. In How great studio. Is that? So he was just a voice to us and now he's an actual whole person. So we're glad to welcome him here in the new year. Brent, thank you for that look at what's happening in our culture. And now it's time for The Lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, I'm going to let myself go first because I'm excited to tell you about this. Well, first, I'm going to start by telling you a Marion story because we all need a Marion story. Uh, It's not as funny as the break-in story, but... You know, it snowed here in Nashville, so we wanted to play outside. We don't have the right gear. So the first day when it was snowing, we played outside for a little bit. We went inside. Snow had gotten in her boots. Her legs were so cold that she had welts on her legs because she has sensitive skin. I was seriously worried I was going to have to take her to the doctor and had maybe given her frostbite. So I felt terrible. So the next day, I wanted her to be able to play. A neighbor let us borrow a bigger coat and I wanted her to play safely. So I dressed her up, and then I proceeded to wrap her legs in saran wrap. I have a picture. Not saran wrap. It's actually saran moving wrap. So it's a big roll of saran wrap that I use to wrap our couches when we move. So I wrapped them and put packing tape around them, and then I put on a pair of mittens, and then I put uh, her hands in Ziploc baggies and packing tape wrapped them and then put other mittens on. And she had a blast and her hands were warm when I took her mittens off after we had been outside for a couple hours. I was seriously impressed with myself. So if you need tips on how to saran wrap your kid for the winter weather, just let me know. But the other thing I wanted to tell you about was a delightful movie that I watched over the break with kind of Marion, although she wasn't as interested, but Disney's Encanto, and you can watch it on Disney Plus. I don't think it's pronounced Encanto. It's in it's Encanto. It's Encanto. Encanto. It's Encanto. It is so delightful. Now, when I first watched it, there was one song that I thought was really weird, but actually, now I like the song. 
The storyline is so sweet. It's a beautiful movie as far as the aesthetics go. Fun music. Lin-Manuel Miranda did the music. Uh, So you may have heard your kids singing, We don't talk about Bruno, no, no, no. We don't talk about Bruno. Well, if people haven't seen the movie, why would their kids be singing? Yeah, well, Well, I I don't know. Well, maybe Your kids are singing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no. Yes, Marion is, and I am singing it. So, and you just did. Yeah. We're trying to grow our audience. We are. So, not lose our uh, audience. I think it's endearing to people when I sing. I hope so. At least I know Lori Bova thinks it's endearing. Shout out to Lori. <laughs> <laughs> so, I would I would recommend the movie. It's sweet. Encanto. Yeah, is your uh lunchroom better than mine? You didn't saran wrap your kids for the snow, did no, you? No, did not did not uh, saran wrap them. Thankfully, my in-laws are uh, from Illinois, and so they secured us snow gear that we had. Nice. Although we need some we need some new ones. So if, if you're li- if you're listening, Grandma and Grandpa, but yeah. <laughs> the kids have kind of outgrown. See, yeah, <laughs> the problem with buying snow gear. While well, there is none in, in Tennessee. <laughs> well, while living in Nashville with your kids is that your kids grow out of it in the year, and you never know if you're going to get snow. We haven't had snow like this and what we had last Ages. year in years. Yeah, yeah. So now I'm going to go out and buy Marion stuff, probably like two or three sizes too big, so that if it happens in another year or two or five, she can still fit in it, whether it's too big or just a little too small. Right. There you go. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a practical solution to the problem that plagues your family. Mm-hmm. So uh, here's what I'm bringing to the uh, table. The 2021... College football season concluded this week, and I just want to say it was a record-breaking year uh, for the University of Tennessee Volunteers. Uh, They scored more points and had more yardage uh, than they've had, I I think, in the program history. Uh, So that was was actually pretty incredible. The Georgia Bulldogs also beat the Alabama Crimson Tide in the national football game, which— Which is incredible. —ended the drought that they've had since 1980. Wow. not winning a national championship. So I'm not really thankful uh, for that. As a matter of fact, I didn't watch the game. But I am grateful for one thing. The Alabama Crimson Tide lost. Mm-hmm. And any day where the University of Alabama is taking an L is a good day. We're looking at you, Eric Mayo. So, Yeah. People ask me, you know, what, you know, what are your, you know, favorite teams uh, in football? And I say, well, actually, I have two favorite teams: the University of Tennessee and whoever is playing the University of Alabama. Not the those UCF my, Knights. Those are my two favorite teams. Well, when they've played the University of Alabama actually, and they beat them one time. So that's fabulous. Yeah, yeah. I didn't watch it either. I would have liked to see what that scene was like. I thought for sure Georgia was going to lose. Sorry, Mark, uh, but. They didn't. So. I did too, actually. I, I did. I did think Georgia because Georgia has this habit of of choking, and so I, I thought for sure that they were going to lose. Well, but, you know who are losers? Uh, my Florida Gators. So I don't even pay attention to their football anymore because they stink. Hopefully, they get way better. It's just sad. We had such a good run, and now things aren't so hot anymore. Yes. So, shout out to all of the Georgia Bulldog fans mm-hmm. out there. Uh, chief among them being Mark Owens. So we are grateful for him and how he makes this podcast happen. And so I know he's very happy uh, with that. But there's there's a number of good Georgia Bulldog fans in our orbit, and we are thankful for them, and we rejoice in their happiness. Yes. 
and may next year bring an Alabama loss as well. I mean, I'm hoping Multiple. they're not in the, yeah, not in the championship. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Alabama fans. Oh, man. I think that's a great place to end before I uh, alienate us from even more listeners. <laughs> and just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of Owens Productions. It's produced by Brent Leatherwood and Lindsay Nicolay. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, and it's hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.